Morning, everyone. Welcome to the Lord's House for Worship today. Today we're celebrating Saints Triumphant, where we just treasure what God has done for us, and yet what he's promised yet for us that's going to come ahead. We're going to reign with the saints in heaven, too. Order of services found in your worship folder. Our opening hymn is Psalm 149, and it's not printed in your worship folder, so please turn to the blue hymnals. It'll also be on screen if you'd like, but it's on page 149, and uh, follow along according to the directions.
Please stand. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. We have come into the presence of God who created us to love and serve him. It's his dear children. But we have disobeyed him and deserve only his wrath and punishment. Therefore, let us confess our sins to him and plead for his mercy. Merciful Father in heaven, I am altogether sinful from birth. In countless ways I have sinned against you and do not deserve to be called your child. But trusting in Jesus, my Savior, I pray. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. Cleanse me from my sin and take away my guilt. God, our Heavenly Father, has forgiven all of your sin. By the perfect life and innocent death of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's removed your guilt forever. You are his own dear child. May God give us all now strength to live according to his will. In the peace of this forgiveness, let us praise the Lord. Almighty God, you have knit your people together into one holy church, the body of Christ our Lord. Grant us grace to follow the example of your blessed saints in lives of faith and willing service, and with them at last inherit the inexpressible joys that you prepared for those who love you. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. this saint's triumphant first lesson from Revelation chapter 7 gives you a glimpse of the future. You read, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, 
nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord. Continue with hymn 880, the selected stanzas. John 3 serves as basis for the sermon. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The word of the Lord. gospel is from Matthew chapter 5, and you'll notice that Jesus talks about a lot of difficult and challenging things here, and yet with every couplet, he says, you're blessed. You're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. Because to be a disciple of Jesus, as hard as this life is, means great is your reward in heaven. We read. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of our Lord. Please be seated to the hymn.
In the name of Jesus, your fellow believers. He had already been examined by Cardinal Cajetan, the Pope's representative. Then he had to defend himself at the debate in Leipzig before Johann Eck. Then he was excommunicated by Leo X, the Pope. And now Martin Luther stood on trial. On trial before the Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, along with other dignitaries, nobles, electors, bishops, priests, and many, many others. And there he stood. On a table next to him were piled high all kinds of books, writings, tracts, treatises, all of Martin Luther's. And a question was put to him. Do you stand with these or do you recant and take them all back? Oh, the pressure was on. His life, his future hung in the balance as he stood there on trial at Worms. I was expecting a few raised eyebrows with that introduction because that was word for word Pastor Bodie's introduction from a week ago. He took it a different direction in line with his text. But for today, we need to go a different direction in line with 1 John 3. We need to pause here for a moment, <clears throat> and I have to ask you a question. Do you understand the pressure and the depth of pressure that was on Martin Luther at that moment? Just imagine the audience before him all glaring at him. It was at the end of the day. Luther thought he was going to get to be able to present the gospel to the Holy Roman Emperor, and he didn't. They snowed him, they cornered him, and then they put him on trial, basically boxed him in, and there he was. He actually asked for 24 hours to think about it. I, I think I know what question was going on in his mind. Is this the hill to die on? Is this worth your life? Is this what it's all about? Or is there something better, something different, something else? Are you all in on this one? Or are there some red flags in your mind that maybe give you a little bit of pause to back out and not be so sure because all of these other really high officials standing before you, they're convinced, Luther, that you are dead wrong, that you've gone off the deep end and that you're going completely the wrong way and everyone is standing against you, basically all of Europe. Luther took his 24 hours to think about it. And he came back the next day, and it looks like he tried to weasel his way to make another pitch for the gospel, and they wouldn't let him. Answer the question. And so he gave that beautiful, memorized response, and I'll sum it up with this. I'm dying on this hill. That was his answer. I'm not giving up. I'm not yielding. I am dying on this hill. And he figuratively did. And he really literally did die that day too because several days after this, Luther is declared an outlaw. He was given safe passage to go where he needed to go for a short time. And then he's declared an outlaw, which means anybody can legally kill him and it's not murder. Luther died on that hill. Now, 1 John presents to you that same hill to die on. 
when he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. It's really quite something. The Apostle John reveals to you not just a little tiny hill, he reveals to you the size and scope of just an incredible mountain of love. In fact, it just takes me back to the time of the flood, strange as that might sound. Noah and his family goes on the ark, God shuts them in, and the floodgates of the heavens rain down, and it's the first time the Bible tells us that it rained on the earth. Can you imagine all of those unbelievers on the earth for the first time seeing rain and thinking the sky is falling, the sky is falling, being terrified by that, by that watery judgment? And of course, they had little time to think about it because their lives probably ended very, very quickly. John is the exact opposite. He wants you to look past those floodgates of the heavens and he wants you to look all the way straight into heaven to the very throne of God the Father himself and look at his heart. And he wants you to see love that is so great, that is so lavish, that it's been rained down on the entire earth and yet most of the earth doesn't see it. This incredible mountain of love. I mean, it's all permeated throughout the earth. Not in judgment, but in grace. And most of the world doesn't see it, but the recipients to John's letter did. How great, or see what great love the Father has lavished on us. It's as if you're soaking wet, saturated, permeated you. It's all about you. God has just piled it, piled it on you and on your loved ones here. And again, he wants you just to see it. Look straight into heaven at your heavenly Father and just be awed by this incredible, lavish love that is truly yours. Because there are many past and present and even in this room that cheapen that love and that erode its enormity. And it's very, very easy to do. All you have to do is shut one eye, you know, kind of look with one eye into heaven. Or maybe you close both eyes because you're inverted and you're turning your eyesight at yourself. See what great love I have, Lord. See how great my life is, Lord. See how I'm, I'm so much better than all of these other people, Lord. We've got our little standings and rankings. In fact, somebody said to me yesterday, you know, Pastor, I, I think I made a mistake once in life, but I was mistaken. They were joking, of course, but our sinful nature isn't. That's what it thinks all the time. And if that's what you're going to go with, if that's going to be your default, if, if you're going to look at that and go with that in arrogance, well, we need to get our eyes fixed and see the eye doctor. You need to see what a great pile of sin is right here in this room. And I'm not just talking about in the carpet that we walk on. Because sin is in each and every one of our hearts. It's in our marriages. It's in our children. It's in our parents and grandparents. It's in the sinful choices we make. It's in the false priorities we set up that are not spiritual at all. 
It's in our selfishness and in our lack of volunteerism and service in the name of the Lord. It shows itself in the sulfuric language that we can use at times, in the graphic humor that comes out of our mouths, the endless gossip that just goes and goes and goes. It's in the little cliques and groups we have that some are welcome and some aren't. It's in the way that uh, we're easy to maybe forgive ourselves and not other people. We hold it against them because it's seared in our brain and we just can't get past it. It's in the way that we think very, very highly of ourselves again and little of others. Do you, do you see what a great pile of sin is right here in each and every one of our lives? Because we just started scratching the surface of that pile of sin. But with all of the force of Scripture behind this statement that I'm about to make, you think long and hard about this. Don't die on that hill. That is not the hill you want to die. You do not want to die in sin. Because the wages of sin is death. That's why John wants us to lift our eyes to the throne room of God and, and see the heart of our Heavenly Father and His just great and lavish love that is so incredible. What is so great and lavish about His love? It's what He did with it. It's that He sent the only Son that He had and He sent Him here, a, a Son who knew no sin, entertained no sin, wanted nothing to do with sin, but everything to do with sinners. And, and He made it His mission and priority to do what with His life? to head right to that huge pile of sin, that huge mound for every sinner, and to go to it, that hill of sin and shame and guilt and hatred and spite and our unforgiving natures and our sinful natures gone wild and our wandering eyes and selfishness and all of these other things. Christ died on that hill. He died on that hill for you. He died on that hill for your sin. For mine. For every sinner. For all of it. Do you see what great love the Father has lavished on us by revealing that to us? Because he wants you to see it. And then he wants you to see in this brief three verses. There's a, there's a huge comparison going on here now. As much as that pile of sin is tremendous and large and gross in size and scope, he wants you to see what's even greater that's behind it. A pile of love that's so lavish that outmatches, outweighs, outsizes that pile of sin any day of your life. And every day of your life. So that Whatever you've done is always outweighed by Jesus Christ. He's always bigger than it. And of course, this is what God has done for you. And that's not even where it ends. John says, first, look at this lavish love that God has done, and now look at what the results are, that he creates by this gospel, he creates faith in our hearts, joins us to Jesus, and now look at what happens because of that. See how great the love of the Father is that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God doesn't just take away your sin. He claims you. And he calls you to be something that you were not. He calls you to be his child. 
That's something that you and I could never do, something we could never earn, something we could never be, no matter how hard we would try. And by calling you his child, he's not diminishing you. Hey, I'm an adult, and he's calling me his child. Well, he's raising you up in a status that you could never, ever have again unless he would give it to you. And by this gospel, he does. You're his child. The implications are you're a member of his family, the royal family, the eternal family. And he opens the door so graciously to his home for you that you get to come in. You get to reside. And now John is looking at this and just thinking about this in his own mind, to be a child of God and to know that his home is my home. And he takes it a step further. And now he wants you to look at Jesus as he's raised from the dead and exalted and glorified in heaven. And as you see him there, John is thinking about, well, what, what is this really, this picture truly going to look like? Sometimes people ask me, what age are we going to be when we, when we go to heaven? You know, what, what exactly will our body be like? Even John says here he doesn't know. He knows somehow the power of God by his promise is going to make this happen. But he goes... I, that hasn't been revealed yet. But here's what we do know. How Jesus is, we're going to be just like him, raised from the dead, glorified and in heaven. And we are going to see him as he is. Which means with your own eyes. For that to happen, you understand, and it gets into this in verse 3 a little bit too, the blood of Jesus, his son, must purify us from every sin, and it does, which means you're not just a child of God. Right here, right now, God calls you a saint. By the blood of Jesus, you are a holy person in the sight of God. And you will live and reign with Jesus, your brother, and our holy God forever and ever. Do you see why Luther wasn't going to yield on this hill? And he didn't. He held firm to it. Didn't matter how many dignitaries and nobles stood against him. And there was a ton of pressure. I just can't even imagine what that would have been like. Didn't matter how much Satan tried to undermine and spread lies about Luther and the Reformation and the work that was going on. For Luther, this hill was worth it. In fact, this is the very same hill Abraham died on. This is the same hill he rejoiced in when he saw the promise of God that that miracle child Isaac was going to come. This is the same hill he rejoiced in when he saw the stars, all of his future descendants by faith. This is the same hill he rejoiced in when he saw Jesus day and was glad he saw the one who would forgive his sins. This is the same hill Joshua stood on when he said, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. We're not budging from this hill. These teachings are our teachings and we're going to practice them and hold to them. This is the same hill that John the Baptist stood on when he taught his disciples, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Follow him. This is the same hill Peter and Paul stood on when they went into their ministry and gave their lives in such a tedious, tireless, tiresome ministry a blessed one, but very, very challenging. And they taught the gospel to so many. And then this is the hill they died on in Rome in horrific ways. And for our brothers and sisters in Christ who died this past year and even prior, our loved ones, our relatives, 
This is the very same hill they were on, too. They received comfort from the gospel here on earth. And when the Lord called them home, he gave them the victory that only the gospel can give. So please tell me what other hill is worth it. What other hill is worth your life? What other hill gives you life? Or to turn it back to the negative, what persistent sin is worth your eternal death? There's an old uh, truism, there's an old adage for pastors. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how long it's been around. If, if one of you knows, tell me after church. But it goes something like this. Preach every sermon as if it was your last. Because you don't know if you're going to die on the way home after church. You don't know which of God's people the Lord is going to call home that day or that week. And so preach every sermon as if it's your last. Put it all out there. Don't hold anything back. Let them hear the law. Let them hear what God thinks about sin, how he can't stand it. Let them see what sin is. Let them feel that weight, that pressure. Because the wages of sin is death. But, but don't stop there. Give them the gospel. Let them see that incredible and great and lavish love of the Father. Let them hear the gospel promise that their sins are entirely forgiven. doesn't matter how ugly, it's forgiven. Jesus paid it in full. Let them feel the fullness of the gospel over them, that they belong to God. And that's what the gospel does. And, and so I, I would have been pretty happy two weeks ago if Daniel chapter 1 was my last sermon. I'd be pretty happy today if this is my last sermon too. Because I see it. In spite of Satan's lies, in spite of the pressure of personal sin, which we all have, in spite of the way the world works today, which is continuing to undermine the word of God, which continues to undermine the church and tries to pick us off, and our children especially, from what God has in store for them. Oh, I see it. I see the great and lavish love of our Father for sinners, for you and me. And I died on this hill, actually in my baptism, September 11, 1977. And I die on this hill every single day as I repent for my own sins. And the day is coming where I'm going to die on this hill. And in this truth, and in this triune God, and in his saving name, in what he has done, and by this gospel, what we've become, that's the hill you want to. Amen. Please stand. join together and confess our faith with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated for prayer. With grateful hearts, Lord, that great cloud of witnesses whose living trust in you recorded in your word becomes an example for us to imitate and follow. With grateful hearts, Lord, the reformers and confessors who faced the terror of church and empire but stood firm in your truth because they were moved by grace, empowered by faith, and guided by scripture. With grateful hearts, Lord, your faithful followers of every age, among them our parents and grandparents and our mentors and models whom your spirit called, gathered, enlightened, and sanctified to be your holy church, and by whose faithful words and deeds the gospel of your grace arrived also to us. With grateful hearts, Lord, Those we have known who endured uncommon handicaps, chronic illnesses, and severe hardships, yet followed you in simple faith and lived their lives with patience and perseverance. Heavenly Father, we join in celebrating with our member Agnes Freming, who tomorrow turns 105 years old. We thank you, Lord, that she's your child who sees your great love in Jesus. Please give her a wonderful birthday. We celebrate with Ed and Sandy Strauss their 53rd wedding anniversary on Tuesday. Thank you for filling their home with your love in Christ over all these years. And as Sandy mentioned so well in her text to me, every marriage needs you as its foundation. Be their strength in the years ahead. With grateful hearts, Lord. Our own loved ones whose memories still burn within our hearts, whom you have called in your good time from their labors in life to that life which knows no end. Hear us, Lord, as we now pray in silence. Empower us, Lord, to carry on the work that you give to your people of the past, trusting your Son, holding to your word, confessing your truth, loving the lost, reaching out with your love, until you call us too by your great grace in Jesus Christ, to join them where memories are swallowed up in everlasting joy. Amen. And we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.
O Lord God, our Heavenly Father, pour out the Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us strong in your grace and truth. Protect and comfort us in all temptation. And bestow on us your saving peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Brothers and sisters, go in peace. Live in harmony with one another and serve your Lord with gladness. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Amen.